0: if you want to turn there in your Bible. And we're learning something as we identify with King David in the recovery from his worst atrocity he'd ever committed, he would ever do as a, as a human being. We know nothing about David's pre-conversion experiences before he trusted in the promise of the Messiah for Israel. We know nothing about David's life and it's, it's, in terms of the before and after, and when did he come to faith? The Bible doesn't go there, so it's it's useless to speculate. But we have a believer, a regenerate man in Israel who has committed uh, adultery, and that sin alone in the law is punishable by death. But then, to cover it up, as we read last time in Second uh, Samuel chapter eleven, David murdered the husband of the woman with whom he committed adultery because she had become pregnant and he tried gangster fashion to cover it up. There's two ways you can read the story of David in 2 Samuel 11. You can say without any reflection on yourself or looking at you, you can look at him and say, what a monster, how could he ever do such a thing? Obviously that's the first option and I usually want you to choose the second one. Or you can look at David as an honest broker with yourself and say um, he got caught in a moment of weakness, he lied to himself about the problem, and then he descended, he swirled into this effort of of cover-up where he ended up with his life in total turmoil, and he was, for at least two reasons, uh, liable for capital punishment under the Mosaic law. You're not going to kill the king. Right? Right? but he deserved it. And how did he commit adultery and murder? Well, he didn't go to war when he should have, but yet he was, uh, he was watching the lady bathe on the, on the roof next door. So he had a temptation problem and uh, an occasion plus an opportunity. He's the king. He can do whatever he wants. Hey, have her come over. He could occasion and, and, and temptation plus opportunity equals the worst possible conditions for success under temptation. And then, after he did what he wanted to do, he uh, sent Uriah, his faithful officer, to go be killed in battle. He he did a, a work where the commanding general would put him into the hottest part of the battle and make sure that Uriah would be killed so that the pregnancy would be covered up. And how did he do this? How did he get into this? He was dishonest. At the bottom, I think, as you read the recovery psalm where he prays for God's forgiveness, I think we'll find that there's a problem of honesty. There's a problem of dealing with himself as he is and how God is going to make us deal with ourselves. And as we start today, I just want to say the two ways of looking at David, obviously you're supposed to say, well, why, why did God let this be so public for 3,000 years? We've been, we've been hemming and hawing over David's gross immorality, his horrible failure. Do believers act this way? Is this the work of somebody that's really a believer? Sometimes they do. Sometimes you do. Sin against the character of God's perfect righteousness. And pretending that it's not true doesn't help. In fact, it's the opposite, and you find yourself into a worse and worse problem. You know, the old old saw, they say, that if you're, if you're in a hole, you know, the first thing to do is put down the shovel. Like, stop digging to, if you want to get out of this hole. Because as you keep digging, it keeps getting deeper, and it gets more and more of a problem. And the hole, in this case, with him, and perhaps with us at times, is dishonesty. David, in the narrative, 2 Samuel 11, in the story, David does this thing and the observer, watching it like a Shakespearean tragedy, the observer says, oh no, no. Even when soldiers die that are collateral damage because the squad or whatever, the group that Uriah is with, they all get killed. They're in a siege. They're sieging Rabbah they go up to the wall where you could actually be hit by arrows or other things that are dropped from the, from the walls. And you know when you're besieging a, a castle or a fortress, you don't go up to the wall. That's the danger zone. You stay back and you stop any water or food from getting into the city to shut it down. Logistically, it's called a siege. But, they, they, but Joab sent Uriah and this squad up to the wall where they got killed. And they, they withdrew the rest of the troops. And David, when he heard that some of Uriah's other soldiers that were with him were killed, he says, well, you know, people die in war. He is so divorced from reality. He's so divorced from reality that it's hard for us to imagine. And how does he come back to himself? He isn't completely devoid of his moral sense. He just won't apply it to himself. How does David, believer, separated from his right understanding of himself in this cover-up sin that he's doing, how does David come back to himself? Well, the wise prophet, Nathan, before telling him, you're the man, helps him understand. This is uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. That's called a parable. I'm Once upon a time, it's a story. It didn't happen, but it did happen. The actual two men in the story about sheep didn't happen, but what he describes did happen. And the truth of the story is it's David. And one of the interesting things, if you want to watch how the Bible works on parables, read this one. There's a truth. And it does follow some of the detail, the true history that he's describing. The one man, uh, the rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. Why do we have to know that it's a female lamb? I don't know, but it's in the story. It's a man and his woman, a a man and a female. See, a, a ewe lamb which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. So it's a family pet. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So the man with vast flocks and herds takes the one thing that the poor man has. And is it right that he needs to be hospitable? It's a right thing. That's a big deal. In Israel and God's design and the law. God's people are hospitable. Yeah, it's a major theme. It's not just culture, there's a God's word influence on culture here. There is a cultural factor in the Middle East to this day on hospitality. But a legitimate need, illegitimately, illegitimately satisfied, is the, is the nugget. Right, and it 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 takes no consideration for that rich man to just oh get that other lamb over there. Doesn't think about him at all. It's just satisfying your need. See, life is more complicated than that. We don't just have I'm hungry, I'm gonna eat. What are you eating? Well, his lunch. No, you don't get to do that. I have student loans. Well, how are you gonna pay for them? His lunch. Um, There's a right way to do a right thing, for example, for modern history, current history, current events. All right. <laughs> but it, anyway, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, this is interesting in the parable, the rich man doesn't eat the lamb. He gives it to someone else, just a legitimate need that needs to be fulfilled. And the point, the focus of the parable is that a legitimate need, illegitimately fulfilled, disregarded the rights of that other man and hurt him, damaged him. Now, David is not without moral sense. He's just not with any moral sense about himself, right? Because he, he's gotten away with it. He's got a conspiracy, Joab and some of the others know, but most people don't know about this and the, Israel doesn't know. And so this pregnant woman, his wife that he's taken as his wife, she's pregnant. They just got pregnant early in, in, the, in the marriage. You know, it's, it's, this is covered. And the, the, the problem is that we're living like functional atheists when we pretend like God doesn't know, like it's not wide open for God to see. And this is part of the, the theme, I think, of this event in David's life, this turning point in the history of David and his house. God sees it. It's wide open to him, and then God makes it wide open for the world, in this particular case. Now, he usually doesn't do that. But he does it here for David. And there's something about to whom much is given, much is expected here. But verse 5 gives you David's moral sense. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Wow. Now, interestingly, David is morally outraged, he's emotional in his reaction, and he's hyperbolic. There's nothing in the Mosaic Law that says if you steal someone's lamb, albeit beloved you lamb that you raised from a little baby lamb, there is nothing that says that you should die uh, life for life, lamb for, for person. That's not, that's not a biblical norm. But David is showing you his emotional uh, level of, of, of outrage when he says this man deserves to, to die. That's clear from from comparing what he says here with the the law that he's supposed to be administering. So he deserves to die. I think that's kind of like, let me paraphrase, I'm going to kill that guy. He doesn't mean he's going to put him to death, but he he does mean that he is uh, about as angry at this man as he could be. And then he says he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. David got the point of the parable and he, he seized upon the issue. He didn't regard the man that he had, he had stolen from. It was, it was a horrible thing. It's not just a theft. Oh, he won't miss anything. It's that he took the most wonderful, precious thing that this man had and was hateful to him in that sense. And so Nathan then said, you're the man. You are the man. And Nathan didn't stop with that and say, Do you get what I mean? He gives him all of God's revelation, what the Lord says about his sin. You're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. It is as though Nathan goes from telling a parable to playing an audio recording from Yahweh. Understand. I believe everything Nathan does here is prophetic, but he is saying this is what God says. And then he starts quoting the God who made everything in six days and rested on day seven. He starts quoting the very word of God in judgment against David for this adultery and murder. And by the way, the emphasis in God's words is on the murder. You murdered Uriah the Hittite. Not that adultery is not sinful or or even a capital offense in Israel, but the focus is on the pinnacle there, the destruction of God's image-bearer. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and under the sun. And so this is that theme in David's life. Where God, he saw it wide open. God didn't miss anything. To God, it was broad daylight all this took place, and now he's going to visit a retribution on David that all people are going to observe. And that's part of the horror of the judgment that God drops on David. And David does what one must do when he's going to tell the truth to God about himself and his false, wicked choices. When we make a bad choice, we don't cover it over and spackle it over and say, well, I didn't really gossip. Yeah, you did. I didn't really look down on that other person uh, to make myself feel better about me. Yeah, you did that. You did uh, envy someone else or you did covet their property or their spouse. You did look on that young woman in a way that you shouldn't have. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, it's tantamount to the act. It isn't the same as fornication or adultery, but there is a sin associated that you are now before God having to deal with. Even the thought. Yeah, I did. And to say I did, well, I didn't. I don't have those. Yes, we do. But my sins aren't the church sins. My sins aren't the things that they call it in church. The things I do, I don't have a problem with Fornication. I don't have a problem with adultery. I don't have a problem with the overt sins. I've never embezzled. I've never, I've never taken, uh, stolen from someone one way or the other. I never cheat on my taxes. I just give the government a little tip, a little extra, just make sure everything's fine. Right? I'm a moral, righteous person. But see, the problem is, David's going to tell us in this psalm, we're born sinners. So, it isn't the question, according to the scriptures. Now, if we let the Bible speak, it isn't, am I sinful? I don't see how I'm sinful. It's how am I sinful? The God says I am. And there is a moral depravity. There is a moralistic, moralistic sense in which people get into personal sin, and it looks very good in, commu- in the community. Arrogance is a central problem, this sense of self righteousness. That, that I'm good in my own eyes, so you know, God must be fine with me. No, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is Romans 3.23. And we're, we're, the question is, what if your conscience is so seared that you can't see your sin? David was this way at this point. But here's the good news. The word of God has a way of healing this wound to the conscience. The word of God can come in and change you. It can help you have that sense again that you need to have about God's righteousness and your sin. It can take that covered over, that walled up corpse, that, what, what the guy put in, in, in the, the, the heart, that Edgar Allan Poe, the telltale heart, that, 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 that body that's under the floorboards, that you've hidden, that you've covered that's oh, not there, boom. God has a way through his word of breaking all that open and cleaning all that rot out and letting you walk in the light as he is in the light. But the, but the thing you got to do that a lot of people aren't willing to do is you have to look at you. You have to tell the truth. First Corinthians 11, judge yourselves that you not be judged, is the grace provision of self-evaluation. First John nine: confess your sins before God is the grace provision of self-evaluation. Confession. And that's what happens here in first or yeah, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. David heard the word of God and it woke him up. It snapped him out of the deception that he had told himself. This lied. Isn't it, isn't that horrible that you can deceive yourself and be living in a, a false version of reality and your brain goes with it? I mean, it's like one of those things where the, the most horrible thing you can imagine is that you're 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 living in this moment, but it's really a dream, and and your life is something other and you're disconnected, you're disassociated. That's we're talking about insanity now, where you don't really perceive reality as it is. David is in a form of of insanity that he doesn't see himself in the parable, but in morality he judges the man. And then he's already judged himself. Like what kind of deceived do you have to be? to hear your story and not see that it's about you. Well, I've, I've compartmentalized that off. I, I don't have that in my con- I, don't, I don't think about that part. I close the door when I leave the bathroom. Right? I'm done with that. I, I, I'm moving forward. But you haven't moved forward. It's still corrupting you. It's still destroying you. So David does what we must do when we come face to face with the righteousness of God in comparison to our Sin that is separating us from our fellowship with God. David said to Nathan, a believer, David, a believer, said to Nathan the prophet, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. It's a simple transaction that is exactly what you think it is. David says to Nathan in the presence of God, I've sinned against the Lord. He owns everything you just said is me. He said, that's what you said is true. He comes face to face with the sin and confesses it. And then immediately an oracle from God through Nathan is, the Lord has forgiven your sin. And so in this case, not capital punishment. He's not going to kill you. But the king, his life is in the hands of Yahweh. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme, The child also that's born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. As we saw last time, behold me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. This is verse 1 of Psalm 51. It is the summary request David has. And notice it is about God's character versus David's need. I brought transgression in me. I'm a sinner, and I brought my transgression on the outside of the frame. And on the inside of his focus, as we, I'm letting you do a little poetry analysis here with the way David arranges this. On the inside focus is God's character. And remember, that is the way to make your appeal on the basis of who God is. I'm a sinner. You're righteous and holy. And in this case, he's not even talking about the holiness in verse 1. He's throwing himself on God's mercy. And so that's the character quality of God that he appeals to in verse 1 by way of review. In verse 2, it might, you might notice something up here. I'm, I'm seeing some some uh, interest here that, that, that I think is really cool. Um, the superscription is the way the Masoretic text starts, and it's two verses of superscription. So... This often happens in the Psalms. In the Hebrew text, it'll be a different number verse than in the English text. But I'm putting the English over here, verse 2. And in Hebrew, it's verse 4. Because that whole thing about a Psalm of David, when Nathan went into David, when he had gone into Bathsheba, like that's, that's actually what the Masoretic considers part of the, the numbering. So don't, don't stress about my numbers. And if I get them wrong, uh, that, I, I don't think I do, but if I get them wrong, that's why. All right. So we had the comparison, of the summary of David's sin versus God's compassion. And he says in verse 2, thoroughly wash me from my iniquity, another word for sin, and from my sin cleanse me. And, and I've told you, and I will tell you a hundred times, Hebrew poetry is art and it rhymes in thought. And so you have the same thought twice, wash and cleanse my sin, my iniquity. They're the same thought. But this is what's fun about this. He puts washing and cleansing on the outside because he switches the order of the second line. Thoroughly wash me from my iniquity and from my sin cleanse me. And that's an intentional thing that happened. David is doing something here. He's bringing his request to God on the outside frame again and focusing in verse 2 on himself, on what he brings to the table. His sin, his iniquity. And, And the focus is a piece of information that is conveyed in the way the text is written. So I wanted you to see it. So I think there's a little technicolor that comes from looking at these things this way. And when you put the two together, you have two inverted verses, two things that are doing this in these four lines of poetry. Behold me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. The focus in the first one is God's character, his loving kindness and his compassion. The second one, it has the same request, thoroughly wash me and cleanse me, just like blot out my transgressions. But the focus in the second one is my iniquity and my sin. And if you look at that together like that, if you do a little bit of analysis and say these words are conveying these meanings and they're offered 3,000 years ago in David's pen in this order, then you come up with an interesting contrast. God's compassion and loving kindness versus my brokenness, my iniquity, my sin. we are right to look at the character of God and see a great contrast in ourselves. Usually, though, in the Bible, the contrast we see is God's righteousness and our sinfulness. Here, you have the solution and the problem. The solution is God's compassion, God's forgiveness, God's loving kindness. The problem is my sin. If you thoroughly internalize this, if I thoroughly internalize this, do you know what happens to you? You know what happens to your character? You would have to be a a rank hypocrite to receive this forgiveness because of God's character and then not become somewhat compassionate and forgiving and gracious to others. That's the point Jesus makes in his teaching on forgiveness. You've been forgiven a billion. You can't forgive your neighbor a hundred. What's wrong with you? But see that, if Having received the grace of God and thinking about it, I've been forgiven. How am I now equipped to be forgiving, to be gracious? Now, why aren't we? Why don't we take on this character quality of God we forget? We don't think about him? A little functional atheism, a little it's just about me. He's not there. I'm not thinking about it. He's invisible. It's not like he's speaking to me from the clouds. I have to choose to open his word. I have to choose to spend some time and what he's given me. So it's easy to slide into this functional atheism. And one way I would apply this is if you and I don't take on his character when we've been forgiven, that's really gross, really petty, really uh, nasty. And you can see why. Uh, An unbelieving world looking for an excuse to reject God can look at God's people and their pettiness and their unforgiveness and say, well, what good is that? Which is one of the points Nathan made is that you brought reproach on God and your sin. This is more about God than about us is one of the big observations of this passage. For my transgressions, I know and my sin is before me continually. That's a change in David, according to the narrative of 2 Samuel 11 and 12. He wasn't thinking about his sin. He was, you know, his wife's pregnant. How'd you get that wife? Well, I don't really go there. Now it is in front of him. Now it is rotting him inside out. My sin is continually before me. Now, if I don't put it in colors, can you see the rhyme? A little little fun exercise here. Look at the text. Pashai, transgressions. I even I know. It's emphatic in the Hebrew. He says, I usually you don't have the, 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 the pronoun independent because the, the subject is in the verb. But he says, I even I know. He's emphasizing, I know my transgressions. God knew the transgressions. Nathan, the prophet knew the transgressions. Joab knows the transgressions. Bathsheba knows the transgressions, but I know. And that, the reason he brings it out is because that's a change from how he was. He wasn't thinking in terms of a sin. He was thinking in terms of what he wanted because he's just a king. He's just a fallen human sinful king like all the kings. They do whatever they want. And they have the power to do what they want. And uh, capability or opportunity plus temptation is a very bad setup for uh, for a a successful encounter with lust. Lust is a challenge. and And one of the great things, remove the source of temptation or remove the opportunity to do anything about it. And both of those put away equals a lot easier life. David going to war would have been a hard campaign for him. He's getting older, uh, but he's not that old. But he's he's getting where, you know, these guys can do it. It's not that big of a, they don't need my insights for the war. They know what they're doing. If he had gone to war and suffered the hardship of when the kings go out to war, it would have been a lot better for him and for his household and for Uriah and Uriah's parents. And all the people that are in- affected by this. My transgressions I know, I know, and my sin is continually before me. And so you saw it transgressions and sin. And you're like, why are you using these huge words? Transgressions. Three syllables for one syllable concept sin, S I N. Well, the reason I have to do that is because the psalmist keeps throwing different nouns in there that are synonyms for sin. We have transgression, which means to step over. There's the line. Don't step over the line. We're like, we're going to step over the line. That's a transgression. It's an it's a illustrative word for what sin does. There's a perfect righteous standard, and don't transgress the standard. It's not the full definition of sin, but it invo- it's involved. Falling short of the glory of God is a portrait of sin in Romans 3.23. Chata is the stock word for sin. And so you have all these different words for sin. But notice, I know and is before me continually. They're the same thought. I'm aware. I'm aware, Lord. I know. Against you, laka, against you, levadka, against you only. Chatati, I have sinned. Against you, you only, I have sinned. And this is the place where you have to ask the Bible the question. Is God speaking? Does God tell the truth? Does God have a meaning here that could be misinterpreted or misunderstood? And can I get to the right meaning that he intends? Has David sinned against anyone besides God in this story? Is there anyone else that has been transgressed? Can we give, let's, let's start naming them. Who has he sinned against? Uriah when he killed him. Bathsheba. Okay, Because he did his king power thing. And you could say, well, there was a seduction and she was a willing participant or was she raped? And the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't address Bathsheba's com- complicity or, or consent. We want to make this about consent. That's not the point of the story. That's the point that 21st century woke America wants to make of the story. It's not about Bathsheba. It's about David. I'm sorry. It, it, it is focused on David's <coughs> excuse me, great failure after great success. And she is part of the story, and God is dealing with her, but I'm saying the narrative is focusing on David. So asking questions about the vagaries of Bathsheba's status and all, you're in conjecture. You can't really get anything out of that that's definitive because it doesn't say. (coughs) I know we're concerned about consent. We should be. It's a principle of volition, and God gave every human being volition, and he's big on not transgressing. The, the free person's volition. It's a big deal to him because of the image of God. So, but it, it just doesn't go there in the story. So I won't go there in my analysis. He sinned against Uriah, I believe, certainly by committing adultery with. He, he sinned against Bathsheba. We don't know anything about the Hittite's parents, except that he had some. Did Uriah have mom and dad? Yeah. Did Uriah's mother want him to be murdered by King David, who he loved, who he served as, as an example. He had taken on the character of David, as you read in Second Samuel 11. Yes, ma'am. All those men that died because of his, assist- absolutely. Yeah. And then, and then all of their families, he dishonors when he says, well, people die in war. It was my stupid decision, but I'm not going to acknowledge that. Yeah, people die in war. He, he deprived all those mamas of their grandbabies when he killed all those men. Joab is the general. And there's a big thing between David and, and the general, remember? And he says, hey, uh, when the king says, uh, send him, tell him, uh, him Uriah is dead. It's a big part of the story. So Joab is corrupted. He's supposed to follow the lead. Well, this is who we are. We're gangsters. The whole nation is transgressed here. David has sinned against everybody he knows because he's the king. And yet verse 4 says against you, when he's talking to God, you only, I've sinned. So how can that be true? Y'all know the answer, I hope. It's poetry. And there is a sense in which it's only a transgression of God. And what sense is that? When you compare how sinful humans, transgressing sinful humans is morally, when you compare that to the transgression of a sinful human against the perfect righteousness of God, the thing that is true between us resolves into insignificance in comparison to the transgression of infinite righteousness in God. And this is part of Jesus' point in Matthew 5 when he's explaining the law to Israel in the Sermon on the Mount. You don't understand God's righteousness. You don't understand what the law is pointing to. It's not about whether you wash your hands. It's about your, your, your corrupted, poisoned heart. And it's not about whether you physically do it, thinking it. It's inside. It's, sin is a bigger deal than you think. And, it's, and God's righteousness is the point. And that's why when you get to the pinnacle portion of God's self-disclosure in Romans, it's about the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Paul says that all scriptures God breathed and is profitable for instruction and righteousness. All of the Old Testament points to the righteousness of God. And so we don't think of that. I'm not, you know, super sensitive to that. But God is. And that's the problem of sin. So here's the thing. if If you're like, I'm not a bad guy. You're not. Nobody here is. That's why you're here. If the shepherd considers you a threat to the flock, you won't be here, I promise. I love you. I'll help you how I can, but I can't have you corrupt in the flock. That's, you're, not a, you're not a villain in that sense, but you're a sinner. So this is a really important point for two, a couple of different parties. There's the aggrieved party that needs to think about this. This hurt me. Yeah, but it was more of an offense to God, infinitely more. So are your sins. Then there's the other side, the person that's, that's done it. We can just go around to all the different parties that we've offended and go make, try to make amends and apologize and all that. But God, God is the focus. So start there. Against you, you only have sinned. an the evil thing, I've got to translate ha hata ta um, ha-ra, the evil, singular Articular, pointing to something specific. So I've translated the evil thing could have been translated this evil thing. The thing that I've done, the, the event that we're discuss, discussing. The evil in your eyes I've done. Therefore, you are righteous. <clears throat> are righteous, it's a doc to be righteous. Dekaiosune, the character of God. You're righteous when you speak. You're pure when you judge. Second Samuel chapter twelve, verses seven through twelve, the oracle that that Nathan has from God in judging David. Everything you've said is the right thing, and I have to agree with you. We have this transactional thing that happens when we get called up short by an authority. They call us in and they want to say, well, you know, you've done well, but here are the things you've done wrong. And we can get real adversarial and real self-justifying about the problems that an authority might have with us. And a lot of times we stay in that adversarial stance where you, you might smile and nod and say, okay, yeah, I'll work on that. But inside you say, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And you end up with this like detente sort of thing where I can still work here, but I'm going to have a thing about this way I've been judged. But not with God and really not with a righteous leader. When someone honestly tells you the truth about you, the worst thing you do is dodge it because it's the truth. And if you dodge the truth, then you're into falsehood. You're deceived. And that's the challenge. Now. David has already judged himself when Nathan told him the parable. He already judged himself. He said this man deserves to die and he's going to pay back fourfold because he didn't have compassion. We want to adopt God's attitude about our sin. What is God's attitude about your sin? He hates it. How bad does he hate it? Lord Jesus was nailed to the cross to bear your sins so that God could offer forgiveness to you for all your sins. How bad does he hate sin? God the Son had to become one of us to take our sins away. And the wrath of God abiding on our sins at that moment of Calvary is expressed in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Adopting God's attitude about our sin... What David says here, you're righteous when you speak. You're pure when you judge. I'm on God's side, which means I have to judge myself. Maybe that's a new thought for some of you, that I would hate my sin. In our popular culture today, we're told that Christians are bigots if they say love the sinner but hate the sin. The reason that is under such an attack in our culture is because it's so clear and correct. We love the sinner and we hate sin the sin, all of sin, my sin, your sin, all the sin. I'll hate my sin first. And then once I've fully absorbed and exhausted all I can about my sin and, and I become aware of other sin, I'll hate that too. Because Jesus paid for those sins on the cross because they separate us from God, because your sin is, the, is the, the cause for God's wrath. And if you die without eternal life in Christ, then you are in your sins. You're identified with them. And so it's a new thought that I would hate the sins, but love the sinner. Do you hate your sin? Or do you wall that off and say, as I present myself, I'm fit for church. I'm fine for, for, for social interaction. I'm, a, I'm an adequate exponent of human virtue as I express myself. But be, behind the scenes, I've got this other version that I, it's Okay. I mentioned it recently as, as a, like a pet that you keep in the, in the backyard that you have a little fence around and a little wall in front of the fence. And nobody knows about this pet. It doesn't bark a lot, but it's back there and you love it and you feed it and you pet it and you play with it and it is, ru- it is ruining you. And you need to go back there with your twenty two and shoot that thing in the head. You know, take that beloved little pet, borrowing uh, Nathan's parable, and totally using it a different way. Take that beloved little sin that you're cherishing and kill it. Whatever it is, <clears throat> but we do this. We um, we don't adopt God's attitude about our sin, and then and then the, the horror is that when we're like this and divorced from reality about ourselves, we'll adopt God's attitude about someone else's sin. We won't look at ourselves, and the and the truth. It's like the, the beach ball. In the water, we're suppressing the truth about ourselves. And so we've got to look around, and we go got to look at someone else, and, oh, can you believe what that person's doing? And that explains a lot of the 24-hour news cycle, explains a lot of what drives uh, what people are so consumed with themselves and their sin, but they're not looking at themselves, and, so, and self-justifying that they go and try to, well, what about the other person's wrong, and, and I get self-righteous about the other person's sin. And, and that is um, so divorced from reality, isn't it? Against you, you only I've sinned, and the evil in your eyes I've done. Therefore, you're righteous when you speak, you're pure when you judge. All right, putting verses, um, <clears throat> this is verses um, three and four together. I want you to notice a couple of thoughts, the themes here. Notice that what's in tan here, you, you only, in your eyes, you are righteous, you are, pu- you are pure. In each case, in all four lines of poetry, he started with, these are all about God. They're all Him. I've sinned, I've done. So the contrast, as we said in verse 4, is God's God versus my sin. God sees it, but I've done it. But then <clears throat> God's character and God's judgment. Righteousness as character comes out in words when God speaks to them, so you have a cause-effect purity in character comes out in what God judges and it's parallel to speech. And so what's the contrast? It's still David's sin versus God's righteousness in a different, intricate way of emphasizing the difference. I've already read 2 Samuel chapter 7 through 12 to you. So let's close on this thought about dealing with God. First, one of the great themes of the Bible is this moral contrast between perfect God and fallen man. If we can't get that under our belt, we don't understand anything about about the Bible. You really don't. It's one of the first concepts. God, who was always there before anything was made, made everything. He made man in his image, and then man fell in disobedience against God. And God didn't make man sin. Man chose it, being deceived by the devil, by Satan, the serpent in the garden. And that's Genesis chapters one through three. God made everything good. He made man in his image, and then man under deception well, the woman, deceived by Satan, disobeyed God, and then Adam followed her. And that's the original sin. And it killed them. And the day you eat from the tree, you will surely die. This is one of the major points in the Bible is that we're broken. And if Adam sinned, then we all sinned according to Romans 5. We're all sinners in Adam. So David is demonstrating that in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and he's lamenting about it in Psalm 51. Our sin is, is the contrast with the righteousness of God. And it does no good to say, well, I'm righteous in the front of infinite righteousness. What righteousness you and I bring is like a little flashlight next to the sun. But that doesn't really do it justice because Isaiah says our righteous deeds are as filthy rags, menstrual rags in God's sight, literally. Our sin versus God's righteousness. In Isaiah 6, for example, you have this awesome portrait of God, where you can't even see his face. It's amazing. He sees Yahweh. He sees the Lord, it says. What do you see? A room full of smoke and the, the train of God's garment filling the whole space. So he doesn't see what the God's face would look like. He sees the glory of God's presence manifested. But in seeing God, what does Isaiah do? When he is commissioned, he immediately feels the difference between himself and God morally and immediately as it were, falls on his face and says, I'm a sinner. Woe is me, for I'm ruined. I've seen the Holy One of Israel. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He not only sees the problem, he confesses it. And that's the step right before he's cleansed from his sin. And it's a vision, a a neat portrayal of the cleansing of sin. And then... He's free to go speak for God, who will go and speak for me. And I'll, I'm, I'm here, send me, says Isaiah. But, it, but the contrast, when you see the holiness of God and, and really understand it. Now, what does that do for you and your conscience? Well, I don't really feel the difference. I don't feel super sinful. I don't feel like God's super holy and righteous. That's showing you a, a problem in our perception. It's, you, you, we're the problem if we don't see the difference. That would be a point of prayer I would challenge you to. Ask God, help me see this. Help me see this contrast the crazy man up front is talking about. That you are so good and holy and righteous and we're not. And us being in your presence is a transgression because of our sin. Help me see why the cross. Help me understand. Because if you don't get that, the cross is just an interesting event. Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul, demonstrated this in these two places. First uh, Corinthians 15.9 and First Timothy 1 Timothy 1:15 are the two places where Paul says, "I'm the worst." In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, "I'm the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the Church of God." Paul is aware His sin is ever before him. He's aware of what he did and seeking to, to, to snuff out a, a, an early um, a, a post-birth abortion, if you will, of the church. He did his best to ruin and destroy the, 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 the fledgling baby body of Christ, as it was just getting started. In 1 Timothy one fifteen, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. He never in his entire ministry, by the time we get to 1 Timothy, Paul's almost done. In all his ministry, in all his revelation from God, in all his communication, all his equipping and discipling he did throughout the Roman world, Paul never forgot his sin. And it was pre-salvation sin. It was what he'd done before he became a believer. But he was always aware. Now, does that mean I'm wallowing in my sin all the time? No, I just know where I stand. And the only thing I have to boast in is the grace and righteousness of God. By God's grace, we are supposed to imitate God as beloved children. Therefore, despite being a broken, nasty, rotten sinner, the apostle says, be imitators of God as the beloved children. He does not say you might want to be. He didn't say it's a good idea to be. He says, this is the summary command at this point in my reasoning. You, body of Christ, Jew and Gentile and one man, be imitators of God as beloved children. And what that will look like if you imitate your dad is you'll walk like him, walk in love. Now, how would we have an example of what the father and his love looks like? Just as Christ loved you and gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. If you follow the example of your savior, then you will be walking like your father. If you follow the example of the ultimate son of God, then you, as lesser children, as sons of the Most High, you will walk like your dad. And it's the exemplar factor of your Savior and your sanctification. My prayer for you is that in our little reflection on Psalm 51 this morning, you've seen that um, this isn't just about David. This is very much about all of us. That there is a problem of self-deception that the Word of God can cleanse. He can can open that up and, and save you from the lie that you're living. And we need that consistent approach. It's not a, well, I confessed my sin one time and now it's over. It's that I am trying to walk with God as he really is. And I'm consistently considering how is my walk? What what are my choices? Where is my heart? What transgressions have I not brought to him? And remember what we see all through the scriptures. The moment David says, I've sinned, he acknowledges his sin before God is the instant that Nathan says you're forgiven. It doesn't take away the consequences of installment discipline that David would receive, but you're forgiven. And what God might have done and the sin unto death, he doesn't do. Father, we do thank you so much for this awesome opportunity to consider your grace and the contrast between your character and ours. Don't let us walk away today in self deception. Don't let us wallow, Father, in our sin either. Let us tell the truth. Let us be honest brokers. You, by your grace, can make us objective about our need for salvation, about the work of Jesus on behalf, uh, on account of our sin and our place. We can also recognize the effects that 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 work has had on us. We are free to walk with you, to walk in the light as you're in the light, to imitate you as beloved children walk in love. Let us embrace that awesome privilege and not walk as the world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.